do you think it means to be included? I think at Cal Poly specifically as a kind of institution, we're known for our kind of industry support, right? Um, which is a very kind way to put it, that we get a ton of money from the defense industry. started this is it um yeah another episode of the front porch podcast um you uh you asked who are you first of all <laughs> uh my name is michael megna third year engineering third student. year mechanical engineering student nice and you texted oh, yeah. me a week ago and you were like can i be on the podcast and i, <laughs> I said, did say that and i yeah. said sure what do you want to I was talk inspired about? by Jenna. Uh, I sent you some things on some of the work I do with a professor of mine on kind of engineering and social justice things. Yeah. So what's that? What's the, what's going on there? Yeah. So I do some work with him on redeveloping some of the curriculum for a class called Statics. Um, to incorporate what we call socio-technical thinking. Um, it's this kind of bridge between um, like a social lens and a technical lens in engineering. Um, because many people, and I'd say it's probably one of the more pervasive kind of thoughts in engineering, is that there's like this idea that engineering is a purely objective technical discipline. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, like, every decision you make has implications for people that would be what we would call a social impact. And so, um, really you can't, I would say you can't really dissociate the two, um, sides of thinking within an engineering context. And yet most of our education is these contrived context, um, less problems, um, of just beams fixed to walls, um, that have no kind of real value other than a problem-solving approach. Yeah. G give us like a really basic example of where you sort of see this, this sort of failure happening of like there's this decontextualized approach that sort of most engineers see themselves as occupying. And to some degree, the world sees engineers as occupying. It's like you give them the problem, the clean you know, raw data problem and they solve the raw data problem versus the sort of real social impact of these things. Like what's a, what's, where does this exist in the wild? Yeah. Well, within my context as a student, I think it mainly exists in the kind of problems we're taught. Um, and so I remember from a class called mechanics and materials where we had this problem 
and we just had two gears that are fixed to a wall and you want to know the deformation if you put a load on it but why the hell would you have two gears just fixed to a wall and completely removed from any other mechanism like it doesn't really right make sense physically um i mean for the sake of working through a like a strategy of solving the problem sure i can understand the value there but um why couldn't we put that in some other context right yeah um in terms of the real world i think there's this sort of notion that um like engineers and their work is somehow apolitical um somehow removed from any sense of a politic um, because of this kind of notion of objectivity, um, right? Yeah. So this is something that um, this fellow Langdon Winner talks a bunch about. He has this paper that's like a really, really big deal in this field that you're talking about um, called Do Artifacts Have Politics? And he basically comes to this. There's two streams that he sort of explores of artifacts having politics. Um, the first is where a design or an invention or like some sort of device or system like settles an issue for a people group by sort of concretizing certain channels of interaction. So you see that in like maybe a like a mobile application where there are like a set of choices you get about like how to use the app. So like say if it's an app, an app to like track menstrual cycles and it says like, these are the reasons you might be doing it. And it doesn't include like every possible reason somebody does it, it sort of settles like, yeah. this is why you'd be doing this activity or using our application. And then well, and that's sort of a classic example too of like, uh, I remember reading from, I believe the book's called Technically Wrong, but they discuss how it's like a lot of those apps are centered around, those menstrual cycle apps are centered around not getting pregnant, um, which is a very heteronormative way of structuring an app that's purpose is to track a cycle, right? Um, and that goes into how you kind of outline your default preferences um, within that application, right? That they're seen as like, oh, it's just a default. Well, they're default to who, one, and two, they're just as designed as the rest of the app. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not, It's not. Um, these are not just the natural givens, and they're just sort of filling in the natural givens of the world. Like, they are constructing a way to interact with the world and sort of concretizing and making firm these, these ways of, working with the world um, yeah that they think best right and so, and so you're right so this is one form of what this fellow is putting forth as far as like how do our devices and our inventions and our objects have politics it's like they make choices for you and the second is something that is clustered around other forms of political relationships so like a device or a system or an invention or something that insists on the rest of the world sort of conforming to the way in which it's um, and the way in which it works. And the example he gives is in renewable energy, you have the difference between solar energy and nuclear energy and nuclear energy creates all of these new problems that then have to be solved with certain sorts of political structures. 
So like this now, this fear of creating plutonium. What do you do to protect the plutonium? Well, now you have to implement all these political surveillance measures and do these sorts of things. Um, and you create a set of like um, like technocrats that didn't exist before that kind of like can govern the show in a way that they didn't have the power to because this technology didn't exist or probably because there's another set of technocrats addressing the last problem that now has brought us to the place where we're addressing this new energy problem versus solar power, which is radically decentralized. Everybody has their own solar unit and to some degree maintenance is up to them um, as far as, you know, cleaning the panels and if something goes wrong, they have to be the person to call the person uh, to, to get them fixed or replaced or whatever. And so you have these two sort of engagements with like creating the politics of, of objects and devices and systems. One is it's sort of like it's making the choice for you is like creating a reality is sort of internally and the other is externally sort of like everything around it must conform to the, d the direction of power that it's, it's kind of suggesting. Um, and so I'm so curious, how have you seen these the politics of artifacts and the politics of objects and devices and systems within whether it's your education at Cal Poly or the sort of like how the engineering program at Cal Poly works, whether sort of like putting itself out as a deep politicized space of education or engaging them in some sort of periphery way or whatever. I think at Cal Poly specifically as a kind of institution we're known for our kind of industry support right right um which is a very kind way to put it that we get a ton of money from the defense industry um and other industries mm -hmm. um that are pretty much the like pinnacle of that centralized power and notion of design right um whereas in energy we're talking nuclear versus solar well, if we're talking about the defense industry, that's an even more specialized, more um, centralized, um, kind of hierarchical kind of control network. And we're just getting, we're being fed money from them, right? And so in our curriculum, it's not necessarily like, oh, hey, we're working on this project for Raytheon. <laughs> it's more like, oh, this is the standard that Cal Poly students live to because this is what we get our funding from, right? Um, and so we have this kind of culture of like, I mean, hell, go to the career fair and I can guarantee you 50% of all the companies hiring engineers are defense or other kind of centralized kind of powers like that. Um, and so while I don't really necessarily see it in the curriculum itself, um, I think maybe potentially if I like think about that more but I definitely see it in the overall culture of Cal Poly where it's very much that kind of external view of like no you have to you're going to be one of those engineers that's going to make those kind of centralized decisions yeah um, and not necessarily one that designs for people to make their own decisions if that makes sense interesting so this is like this this patronizing not patronizing this like paternalistic approach to design as like i know more and i'm going to develop these systems because i'm the person of expertise rather than because of my education i am going to design systems and objects that work for people as well as they can 
Yeah, and I think too that I think I shared another piece with you um, by a, a sociologist named Aaron Setch. Um, it's about the culture of disengagement in engineering education. She kind of follows how throughout the four years um, at this kind of university she studied that engineering students became less engaged with the kind of societal or like helping motives throughout the four years. So they come into college being like, yeah, I want to use engineering because engineering is to the benefit of society and I want to help. And it lessens over the time in college. And so we're actually doing negative work in fostering that kind of community or societal engagement within engineering. Um, and I think that has really broad implications when we do get funding from big companies um, that are those kind of external powers that be, right? Um, because if we're less engaged to have a good impact on society, quote unquote, then we're going to be more prone to go with what these big companies who give us money are telling us to do, right? I was talking with a roommate of mine when we when I was reading this piece and I asked him about, you know, they, this, this big thing that she talks about is concern for public welfare. I was like, was that, like, how was that in your school, in your schooling? Um, and he was like, oh, no, like, there was an engineering ethics class, but they got rid of it. Um, and now, like, the material that was in that that was deemed as, like, required for an ME degree is boiled down to two lectures during your senior project courses as far as, like, what are engineering ethics and why are those a valuable thing to be working on? And it was mostly now just in, cons in like, concerning how do you avoid getting sued? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what is public welfare? She talks about this a great deal as this sort of, like, are students interested in public welfare as they are learning about engineering and becoming engineers or are there people disengaging from public welfare? So like, what, what is that? Like, what is this public welfare? Yeah. Well, I find it funny how she directly quotes the like engineering code of ethics, right? Um, where it's like engineers hold paramount, the safety, health and welfare of the public and the performance of their professional duties. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like well. I like how it is. she seems almost sarcastic and how she quotes that. And the rest of the rest of her piece kind of just tears that apart. Where it's like, well, we're not really doing that in school, right? You're not really fostering this. Um, I don't really know if I have a particular answer to that, um, but I think different engineers would say vastly different things for that, because you could talk to someone in the defense industry and public welfare to them is protecting America at all costs. Interesting. Right. Versus someone in the energy industry, public welfare is I want everyone to have clean energy. Right. Um, and so I think it'd be a challenge to kind of put one sort of, at least within the context of engineering. Right. Um, I don't know how it'd be, it'd be definitely pretty tough to kind of nail down a, like a, like a solid definition of this is our goal as engineers, right? Right, like it's your public is different depending on what your problem is. And you get to yeah. and you get to choose which public you're addressing, right? Like, okay, so if you are working for Raytheon or Northrop Grumman or Boeing or, uh, I don't know, one of the many 
uh, companies that have a building on Cal Poly's campus. Um, and you're developing the next, um, some piece of the next missile technology that's going to, you know, you're working on the cutting edge drone stuff, totally unmanned, like completely safe. The public wear flare, you can choose which public, right? You can choose the American public. You can choose the sort of like American military of like, we're keeping their boots off the ground. We're protecting the homeland. Mm. We are a part of the security force, national security. Like this is our public that we are protecting. You're engaging in public welfare in this way. Or you engage in the public of whatever, uh, whether it's, you know, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, want some Middle Eastern country that this drone is going to be sent over to. This public is very, very different and has radically different interests as far as how this missile is going to be designed, namely it mostly not being designed. Um, yeah. And so, and what this paper seems to encourage is that like, the public welfare is basically just like the concern of people as far as who your designs will be interacting with. And her conclusion is basically across four schools over four years, the group of students as they're assessed, no matter what, their concern for the impact of these things on anybody, literally any public. It's not necessarily choosing one that's, you know, more politically, socially... Uh, just or anything like that it's just no the concern for a public as far as designs are concerned is reducing regardless of any any other factor and that's pretty i don't know yeah deeply it's concerning like, well it, it even it takes out the question about like who your public is if it shows that everyone's or like concern is going down right mm -hmm. yeah well i think you brought up a really interesting point it's like if the code of ethics is to hold paramount the safety, health, and welfare of the public, then it must be the engineer's job to determine, one, who that public is, yeah. and two, how that public outweighs some other, which I would argue is inherently a social skill. Or I don't think you can just plug in some numbers on that and get your technical answer from dynamics. <laughs> that says, oh yes, this is who you're considering for this because I got this number. And so you have to be able to consider that kind of social implication. But as she kind of talks about, it's like, we don't consider that at all in school. No, yeah. And it's interesting because I think it, like the public sort of becomes this like pacified mass where it's like, they'll use the thing as we've designed it to. Like, don't worry yeah. about them. Like they're going to, we'll have our we are so smart that will our design just will make sense and it's funny because there are inventions devices object systems that have been created for one intention and then the public gets a hold of it and deploys it in a very radically different mm -hmm. direction so you take something like twitter twitter was originally yeah. conceived as something to like um organize where people who are working at the same place are going to go for lunch. Like you, everybody in the same workplace is like, Oh, you know, you get on the app and you're like, okay, where is everybody going? And now it becomes, you know, a social media that's alongside all the rest of them for, you know, whatever the witty quips and memes and all these, all the rest of the, the stuff that it's, that it's used for. Um, 
but it's just like the public is the reason that the app's use changed and like literally the purpose of the app like what is the value of this application you can buy stock in it now because the public's power over its deployment in the world is so radically powerful and to like not consider that seems so odd because the value of the application comes from its interaction with the public yeah i think that's a really interesting case right where it's like you have something that's the original intention is far different than what it is now and yet it still is widely accepted and successful right um i don't think we're always that lucky i'm trying to think of an example where it's not that kind of cut and dry but i i have a feeling that there's quite a few kind of instances of the public using something in a way that was not intended and it going very poorly. Yeah. I mean, you think of like most, well, this is, I don't know about this, but the sort of like most drastic example is like any sort of act of terror is typically like the use of some piece of technology for something that it was not intended to use. Like you look at the sort of wave of, white supremacist or domestic white supremacist terrorists in the u.s over this over this summer it is people using cars to drive into crowds it's like this is not what a car is for um and i'm not sure that begs like a really interesting question where it's well the engineer obviously didn't intend for that to happen Mm -hmm. and so is there any responsibility on them for it right yeah 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 i don't know yeah I don't know either because it's it seems as though they had no kind of role in how people use it right but at what level are they responsible for how people use it like civil liability and kind of liability laws still exist and you can get sued if you make a bad product even if someone uses it wrong right Mm -hmm. and so I think that's where you enter into this gray area of the responsibility of an engineer in terms of their kind of civic um, duty or in terms of the code of ethics or it's protecting the welfare, right? Well, it's why well, didn't intend for it to hurt the public welfare, but it did. Well, that wasn't the way I was thinking, but it still did. And so therefore, are you responsible? I think that's a really tough question. And I often think it's kind of case-by-case deal, but I don't know. It is really tough to kind of determine rigidly what the responsibility and code of ethic of an engineer should be, granted the vastness of the discipline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like engineering is something that we just really didn't, there isn't a lot of sort of like philosophizing happening about what, what are engineers doing? Like what's their role in the world? Like I think something like a physicist or a philosopher or a a teacher um, and even a scientist to some degree, there's like a lot of sort of negotiation and philosophizing about sort of like how these positions sort of developed in society. Um, I think about like, sort of the beginnings of science as a as a discipline that's separate from philosophy, like in the 15, 16, 1700s, 
Um, and you have the, all these debates about like, what's the value of science? Like, why are we doing this? Like, what's it for? And there was a couple people, Francis Bacon and Robert Boyle. They basically came to the, the conclusion of like, well, you know, we know science is useful if it is making things in the world that people are using. It's like science is important and science is useful and science is doing what it's supposed to be doing when there is some sort of like application that can be uh, sold and can be profited upon. And that's kind of where like the beginning of engineering, like it's science taking a turn, not just for the sort of like raw application of knowledge and like generation of like information about the world or organization of information into knowledge about the world. And it's the turn of taking science and saying, nope, like science is to be used and to generate new things or to like be productive. It's the productivity of science. Um, and yeah, I just don't think that's something that we sort of like really reason out. Like engineers are yeah. used for so many different things, like the development of like Germany's horrible um, system of like the removal of a, a group of people. Like the idea may have come from this like horrible individual, but the application and like how all that occurred, like that was an engineer's job. It was teams of engineers jobs. There were so many people that had to make decisions of like, is this, what are we doing? Like, what is this? Why are we, what are we up to here? And I don't know, maybe somebody asked and they were silenced or something, but like, it's a very amoral position. Yeah. Well, I think too, in, in the research I've done with the professor I'm working with in the kind of context of redeveloping kind of curriculum is I've even seen that kind of not lack of, but definitely less, um, more that philosophical or sociological thought in regard to engineering education, as opposed to other like kind of disciplines in education. So a lot of the research we use is actually from math or physics education. Um, and there's not a huge body of work comparatively about engineering education, right? And so a lot of our discussions have kind of felt like, man, as a discipline, we're kind of playing catch up here. Whereas in like other STEM fields, uh, math or science, um, there's whole like K-12 curriculums based on um, culturally relevant pedagogy and other kind of new age kind of ways of learning and active learning. Um, but for engineering, like we're still very much on the cusp of this. I think like this culture of disengagement piece was 2014, I think that came out. Um, and so it's interesting going through that research and now kind of applying those principles from many times physics um, and science education to that of engineering. Um, but yeah, there, there's not as much kind of meta thought around engineering as there has been in other disciplines in my experience. I do think it's like definitely like more and more engineering educators and students are kind of thinking about this more and it's becoming more kind of relevant um, to have these discussions about engineering education as we would with um, like math or science. Um, but yeah, I definitely noticed that kind of 
lack of critical thinking about the education methods we're using. Yeah. So this is a, I think this is a question you'll enjoy. Um, Cal Poly is one of the most, probably the most religious public university in California um, with a program that is sort of see, like very highly regarded in the engineering world. It's like, if you get a degree from Cal Poly in engineering, like that's a, like that's a really good thing. And it's also this like extremely religious place as far as public universities go. And so I'm curious what you think about the sort of over the overlapping of like people who are coming to Cal Poly with a religious like set of like a religious morality, a morality that's Mm -hmm. informed by some sort of like religious tradition and a belief that like something else is going on and all these sorts of other, everything that comes with that in all sorts of directions. Um, And then also coming to a place where the work that they are going to be doing after they leave Cal Poly is something that they are actively disengaging from as far as that impact of the work in the world. And it's so curious because all these people are talking about sort of like, you know, how do we build the kingdom of God? How do we do all these things? And then they go on to make 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars a year in industry. And there's a consistent disengagement of how they accumulate their living and, you know, the work of, their faith in their life. So I'm curious what, if, have you seen, have you seen that play out in, in the classroom or with people, you know, or anything like that or with yeah, yourself? I think, hmm, I think what I've noticed, um, like the first thing that came to mind is, um, like the kind of persona of the engineering student who comes to Cal Poly to learn engineering, to help people, specifically people abroad. Um, I think, um, I did some work with, um, engineers without borders last year. Um, and as a whole, I think they're incredible. Um, they do awesome work and they're doing a lot of kind of meta thinking about their impact on, um, these places as engineers. Right. Um, I think they're doing good work, but I've known in the past, um, that there can be, um, and I'm not calling out our specific program again. Um, but this kind of white savior mantra Hmm. of like, I'm an engineer, I learned how to do this, or I'm learning how to do this. I'm going to go build something for these people to help them. Um, but you get into these questions of like, okay, well then why are there so many inactive or broken wells scattered around Africa? Hmm. Right you get these kids that come in and want to help. They want to use the gifts that God has given them Mm -hmm. to punch numbers in their calculator and design, Mm. um, to go across an ocean and build something highly technical for people that may or may not really need that complex of a solution. Right. Interesting. Um, and I think we did a lot of thinking behind that in engineers without borders. And I think they, they're doing a great job in kind of recognizing their role. Um, in not building highly complex systems when they don't need to. Um, But from my own experience, that's kind of the main kind of thing I've seen is a lot of my Christian engineer friends are involved with EWB. Um, And I think many of them are for the right reasons, but I think in the past there has been this sort of, 
oh, I want to help people with the gifts that God has given me. Therefore, I go across an ocean and build something um, like that. Um, and I don't have personal like experience with that. I've just, from discussions with folks around that kind of community, um, it's definitely one of the things we talked about a lot is how to avoid that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so curious that it becomes this sort of like separate body of work of like, this is how I use my, it's not that the faith informs how like your, uh, your living wage is generated. It's like, I have my living wage. I have the work that I do to like make an income. And then I use those skills to do my religious activities, to do my religious work as far as like going somewhere else to do something meaningful and then I can come back and feel guilt free as I, you know, build missiles and um, develop <laughs> drone technology and things like that. Um, that was something I had a, a friend who wrote a paper on cultures of petroleum geologists, which is a little, huh. a little different. I mean, I think geology is a highly applied field. Geology is a field literally developed for the, um, like better the improved extraction of oil from the earth and so it's like very adjacent to engineering as far as like applied like hard applied science um, yeah and how the they studied how the petroleum geologists were reflected in their obituaries as far as like mm. what did their communities say about them because your obituary is sort of written by the people around you it's not written by you um what did the community say about petroleum geologists after they had died? Big focus on their faith, a big focus on like they wanted to like be good people. All the while they are a part of the extraction of oil from the earth and all these sorts of things that we now know cause like pretty, pretty severe damage to our, to our climate and our environment. Um, yeah. Well, I think it go back, goes back to the question of the public you're considering in public welfare, mm -hmm. right? Um, where if your public is those who need energy quick and cheap, yeah, then you're supporting their welfare by getting them cheap fossil fuel energy, no matter how clean or dirty it is. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. This, to sort of, I don't know, wind us down, I have a, a kind of a funny question. I think there's a lot of emphasis at, from across on the disengagement paper. They address this on this sort of like case study on design for social justice. It's called engineering design for social justice. The name of the chapter in this book. Um, and then the, this other essay on normal people and normal people, quote unquote, normal people's interaction with technology. Um, and, um, like engineered systems and objects. Um, there is an emphasis across all of these as far as like what engineering looks like from the outside. How is engineering, like what, what are you doing when you're, what are you, what are you looking like when you're doing engineering? And the, the issue with a lot of the sort of like more contextualized approach, one, one paper talked about contextualized listening. How do you listen to your users? Uh, the other talks about, you know, engagement in public welfare. How do you do engaged engineering? And the, one of the main concerns from engineers 
in all these papers is that like, well, you know, this isn't going to look like engineering anymore. Like it's going to look too soft. It's not going to look like hard data. And so I think this sort of like um, the gap that occurs here as far as like, how do you, how do you enter into a space where you are doing engaged engineering or doing contextualized listening in your engineering or how do you sort of incorporate rather than using one of the papers talks about the difference between averages and average and normal average is this sort of like quantified place that maybe or maybe not anybody actually occupies occupies whereas normal is all the sort of like divergent ways that a, a person will use technology or use objects all of which are normal um and so how do you sort of, you know, design for, for the normal and not design for the average? Like, how do you do all these things and still, like, feel like you're doing engineering? That seems like it's a major complaint among the research subjects of all this, this body of work here. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have encountered this, like, this question of, like, the aesthetics of engineering and, like, what is it that we're wanting to be doing and what is it that we're wanting to be looking like when we're doing engineering? Yeah, no, I think there's, t there's kind of two things that come to mind. Um, and first, uh, like in my experience, um, as a learning assistant, right, like a facilitator in the classes I work with, um, I've noticed there is like not a large, but for some students, there is a bit of pushback to these sort of contextualized problems mm -hmm. um, that we're considering, right? Because they don't seem like hard, fast, objective engineering, right? Um, and my response to that is, I would say it's a both and, right? I think what we're arguing is that it's, we're not arguing that engineers are strictly sociologists who need to go listen and find out what the problem is. Because at the end of the day, you still got to design the damn thing and make sure it works well and, and, and doesn't blow up on people, right? Or unless you're in the defense industry, right? Um, but <laughs> um, at the end of the day, like, that is still crucial, right? The actual analysis still is necessary in the engineering design process. But this sort of social element has to come before because if you don't, you're going to end up with a number that means nothing, hmm. right? I can do a complete analysis of a truss or some sort of system. Well, maybe not me as a third year, but an engineer could and get a number. But if you don't know what that number's saying, it's useless. And so without developing these social skills of examining who you're designing for, your public, right? Um, these sort of normal versus average case studies and stress cases then you're not going to be able to effectively apply your analysis to actually solve the problem. Um, and so that's like the pushback we get from students is that, oh, I'm just taking this class so I can learn how to solve it. Well, if all your classes are like that, you're going to be damn good at plugging numbers into your calculator, but you're not going to be a good engineer. And I think the, hmm, the sort of second kind of case where I see this, what you call the aesthetics of engineering, um, is, is in the culture of, and for my case, mechanical engineering, where it's very much looked highly upon if you're a mechanical engineer who's working in the shops and getting their hands dirty huh. 
and doing stuff with clubs. Um, yeah, and it's like especially like, oh, if you're a shop tech and you're a mechanical engineer, oh my goodness, you are like the holy grail of mechanical engineering. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so you get, I, I think I would even call it this almost toxic masculinity in engineering where it's like, yeah, like we get our hands dirty. We're not just normal like UC engineers. We're Cal Poly engineers, right? Right. We learn we by do doing. Stuff. Yeah, right. And so you get into this like, okay, so <laughs> anything that's not with your hands in the shop, is that not learning by doing? <laughs> right? You're like, if, you, if you're reading, is that not doing? Interesting. If you're having discussions with people about the implication of a design, is that not doing? Right. Yeah. And yet the sort of prevailing mantra within engineering is, especially at Cal Poly is get your hands dirty, join a club, work in the shops, engineer. Um, That's what it is. Anything else is not doing and therefore it's not Cal Poly. Yeah. Which makes the work we're doing super difficult. Um, with the kind of pushback we get is cause at Cal Poly, it's like, that's the, that's the thing. Learn by doing right. Not learn by talking about our feelings as they would say. Right. Um, it's go out and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, as anybody who is, uh, I don't know, working today here at Front Porch, we are designing and making things and trying to keep our users in mind. So uh, what better discussion than to talk about some, uh, some of the stuff Front Porch is up to? Let me see here. What are we doing? Great segue, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> We've, uh, this, I think, okay. I think the coronavirus is making us sort of like consider our, the design of our social interactions in a way like never before. Um, mm, interesting. And so like yeah. with front porch sort of being like a lot of our work is social in nature it's interaction, it's relational, it's, you know, people work. And now all of that is sort of like reduced and flattened in all these different ways for our public health issue, uh, concerns, which makes so much sense. We're having to invent and be aware of these things in totally different ways. So now we gather apart from one another. We've moved our coffee service to the outdoors because apparently the viral load gets spread out or something like that um we've also got this like uh what is it called the the room that you can book in the back for your um like all these new problems have have come about because we can't leave our homes we we have people who may have a home environment that's not uh, conducive to like having private conversations, you know, whether they do see an online therapist or seeing a doctor or something like that. So now we are trying to address this by having a room that somebody can book for whatever they want for an hour or two at a time to have those sorts of appointments in by themselves. Um, so we're, uh, you know, trying our best design to the design to the, predicament here we also this is something i think um 
I should have had you look at before we finished, but I didn't. We designed a Google Sheet that you can make a copy of that you can create a coronavirus testing schedule with based on who you're interacting with. So there's like six points of instruction on how to use it. You put all the names of your people in your household in. You put which household they're in. So if you have people from two different households that are interacting, you number them. Okay, everybody in one household is numbered one. Everybody in another household is numbered two. And you get a testing week generated, whether it's an odd week or an even week. And then you can get reminder texts every other week to remind you to get your test on the right week. And then you fill in your data and uh, promoting all sorts of positive relationships with with our data uh, when data has become such an important thing um, as far as, you know, transparency about who's sick when and all the fun stuff like that. Doing design in real time here at the front porch. Um, have you seen this thing? I haven't. Well, you should check it out. I don't think very many people have seen it, but it's awesome. Um, of course, everything is on our Instagram. So, uh, so yeah. Link in the bio. Link in the bio. Link in the link tree. Um, so, yeah. Design, man. Something that I think everybody I've heard of it and at Cal Poly is like, oh, yeah, I've got to get design experience for for industry not a whole lot about the quality of that design experience any uh any final thoughts for us that's all i got i got i went through all my notes here on my on my my readings oh did you know that guy langdon winner is from san luis obispo yeah i think you told me that um that's pretty neat (laughs) he has the book that that essay do artifacts have politics comes from is called the whale and the reactor Oh, yes, the, yes, I've heard of it. The reactor is Diablo, Diablo Canyon. Canyon. There is, I'm trying to find the part. Okay. My hometown, this hometown is slow. My hometown, it is important to note, is situated almost exactly halfway between two large urban centers, San Francisco and Los Angeles, about 250 miles from each. During the decade and a half that followed World War II, uh, the bucolic environment of San Luis Obispo was shaken again and again by technological and social transformations that seemed to emanate from one city or the other, or both. In a few short years, the town witnessed the coming of freeways, supermarkets, jet airplanes, television, guided missiles, which I could watch from my front yard as they were shot from Vandenberg Air Force Base, computers, prefabricated houses and large tracts, wonder drugs, food additives, plastics, and a great many other innovations. The shape of the home and the activities of the family were refashioned to accommodate the arrival of all kinds of electronic gadgets. In our society's enthusiasm to rationalize, standardize, and modernize, it is often thoughtly discarded qualities that it might, on more careful reflection, have wanted to preserve. Our institutions have engaged in a continuing process of reverse adaptation, in which things are reshaped to suit the technical means available. From almost every single, from, al- from almost every important sign, it appears that this process still moves ahead relentlessly and without limit. Just as Henry Adams recognized a law of acceleration as he confronted the dynamo, 
my experience at Diablo Canyon suggested an obvious pattern of events. If there is a distinctive path that modern technological change has followed, it is that technology goes where it has never been. Technological development proceeds steadily from what it has already transformed and used up towards that which is still untouched. Thus, as one strives from L.A. to San Luis Obispo and on to San Francisco, one senses a certain inevitability in the way the landscape is going to change. People from L.A. and the Bay Area, from Boston and Newark, will go searching for greener pastures, for places to develop, places to retire. More and more of the countryside will be torn up, paved over, improved. Few people are capable of acknowledging an obvious fact. Americans now value countryside according to the extent to which it has not been despoiled by reckless economic and technological exploitation. Having ruined the natural and human ecology of the places they came from, they move on to begin the process anew. Of course, this process is not confined to geographical places. The gene pool itself is the obvious next target for innovation and development. Everyone's hometown, I suppose, contains a monument or two to this remarkable progression. Mine just happens to be San Luis Obispo. Oh!